Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I want to uh, start the talk with a favorite passage of mine. Still too loud. How's this? It's okay. Favorite passage of mine from um, Suzuki Roshi, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. In our scriptures, it is said there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in practice, you will find out whether you are one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of what practice is. If you think the aim of practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. This is not right understanding. If if you practice in the right way, it does not matter whether you're the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, How do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He would probably have more sympathy for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you'll find the worst horse is often the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Isn't that comforting? (laughs) Unless you're just grooving along and just having a, you know, don't, don't, worry about it, you know, enjoy it while it's there. I want to talk tonight about this habit, deeply ingrained habit, that most of us have to compare and judge. The judging mind, comparing mind. We've kind of touched on it a number of different talks, certainly Winnie talking about striving last night or 
Sally talking about restlessness and worry. The judging keeps in, creeps in so easily. Or I spoke about being humbled. But this is a, we're gonna go directly into it tonight. <clears throat> this is a, a really key issue in practice and one that if you find yourself getting caught in, um, you probably have a lot of company. This habit to see ourselves in relationship to others, to compare or to judge in the uh, teachings is called the conceit of I am, mana. And it's one of the last things to go on our path to full awakening. If you aren't familiar with the, the different stages of awakening in the classical Theravadan tradition, there are four different stages of enlightenment with different fetters being uprooted as you go along. The third stage of enlightenment, which is pretty rarefied atmosphere, there's still judging and comparing in the mind. There's still the conceit of I am. So if you find yourself comparing and judging, it just means you're no farther than third stage of enlightenment. <laughs> and uh, just be a little bit lighter on yourself. This is um, what the Buddha says about this. One who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior, for that very reason disputes but one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person, the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. For one who is free from these views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions like these, they wander about in the world annoying people. And we seem to annoy not only everybody out there, but in particular, the one right in here. It's amazing how it crops up. Have you seen when it comes on, on here, on the retreat, particularly in the social situations, you know, there's, of course, being in the dining room, Lots of room for comparing and judgment. You know. Oh my goodness, they're heaping on a third portion. You know. Oh, I dropped my fork. Oh, everybody knows I'm such a klutz. You know. Or walking meditation. You know, just, wow, they're going so slowly. What a good yogi. You know, or... Who do they think they're trying to impress? You know, going so slowly like that. It can be exactly the same thing and you have a judgment around it. Or somebody's going quickly, God, they're just themselves. They can just be natural. 
or don't they get it? Why don't they slow down? You know, it's amazing. And you see it, of course, in yourself. You know, on on one retreat, I've shared this before with people. I was, you know, I I sometimes get into the mental noting, and there I was, you know, doing doing walking meditation. You know, and I sometimes I like to go slowly and just kind of lifting, moving, placing, and just really being enjo- enjoying it. Nobody around, just really getting into it. Somebody else comes in, and all of a sudden, I, I, after a while, I kind of caught myself, and the noting became lifting, moving, looking good, lifting, <laughs> moving, looking good, looking good. Yeah. It's, it's humbling to see how much we look outside of ourselves or check ourselves in relationship to others. And particularly those who come, who have been brought up in this culture, in the States culture, you know, it it is so endemic, so ingrained in our psyche, you know. We're number one, we're number one whether it's your, your team or your political party or your class or your race or any way that you kind of feel a comparison, that mindset can be activated either superior, inferior, or equal to, but usually the first too. It's so incredible. So this is some deep conditioning that, that, we're, that we're dealing with. Competitive practice. You know, when I first started getting, my first time I did a, a, a long a fall retreat, you know, I, I kind of, I would get into it, but then late at night, you know, there, there's this special club that sometimes forms and they're still sitting. I'm gonna sit too, you know. I'm gonna be the last one, you know. And then when I, when I really got into advanced practice, I let go of being the last and became the second last, okay. Oh, aren't I wonderful that I'm not the last, you know. <laughs> and it happens, you know, even if you've been doing this for a long time, as teachers, the comparing mind can come up so easily. Oh, they're so clear. Oh, such filled with love. Why can't I be like that? You know, when I first started teaching retreats, uh, bigger retreats, I remember in early days, there I was at, at Yucca Valley with about 150, 175 people and Joseph would give the talk one night, just clear as a bell. Then Jack would talk and just, you know, weave his magic spell. And Sharon would give a talk and, you know, have everybody weeping with metta, you know. And then I'd be up. (laughs) And I knew if I was in the audience, I'd say, get that guy out and get Goldstein back up there, you know. (laughs) It was really painful. It's true, it's true. Here's a, 
Here's, uh, I, I love this passage from Ajahn Sumedho, a, a, a very brilliant, wise teacher. He says, um, when I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say, aye, aye, sir, in public in a roll call would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher, teaching eight or nine-year-old Chinese kids in northern Borneo for a couple of years. That wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai, all this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you re you're really good, Sumedho, you can give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I'd give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to give another talk ever again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. <laughs> but the idea was to keep watching this. And Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment and self-consciousness that I'd feel. And fortunately in Thailand, people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk, even if it's not a very good talk. It doesn't seem to upset them very much. <laughs> They still seem quite grateful about it, so that made it a bit easier. One time at a katina ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. And up until that time, I'd only talk for half an hour. That was a strain, but three hours, and he knew. With Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it, so I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. <laughs> I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. <laughs> and in the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies left sitting there. <laughs> now, Ajahn Chah wasn't saying, okay, Sumedho, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them and really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All these have come up during these talks of all these, throughout all these years. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of a self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. This conceit of I am, and the word conceit, don't let it throw you. It's not, it's not only with pride. I hope you get that. It means taking this self to be separate and then referring to it, having this as the continual reference. How am I doing? Am I okay? I'm doing pretty well now. What do people think of me? Etc. Etc. Most all of the thoughts that are troublesome thoughts, take a look for yourself and see in one way or another they are referring back to this self that the mind creates. And often it's rooted in fear of not being complete, not being enough. Often in a, a feeling of unworthiness in one form or another. This is a, a big issue. People have mentioned it 
more than once in the last few interviews and not surprising it's you know it, it's just very prevalent but this is a misperception not being enough at one three-month retreat at the end of the retreat, towards the end of the retreat, this is many years ago, the Dalai Lama came to the, to the retreat uh, the last few weeks. It's a great way to end a retreat, the Dalai Lama to come you know, and give a, like a question and answer. He visited uh, IMS. And there was this exchange. Somebody asked him about unworthiness and it took him a while for the translator to get the concept across. And then after a while he got it and he looked at this person and he said, you're wrong, you're absolutely wrong. Imagine the Dalai Lama saying, you're wrong, you know, after two months, two and a half months of sitting. And then he said something to the effect of, what makes you think that everything else is part of the fabric of life and you're not good enough? Really, stuck with me. There's a line in, uh, to paraphrase a line in the Course in Miracles that says something like, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Love that line. And so, Partly, one way to mitigate this is to, um, is to send metta for ourselves, which we've been doing. It's a, it's a, par, it's a, it's a movement towards self-kindness. It's not the, the full awakening, but it's something really helpful and important to do. And for me, it was a turning point in my practice where I really got metta for self, and look at the time. And I think I want to uh, just share a little bit of, of this with you, a practice that uh, really helped me a lot. So first I want to ask you, if you met somebody who really understood you, who really understood your take on things, and and got your perspective, really understood your hopes and your fears and your sense of humor and um, just how you saw things. How would you feel about meeting someone who really understood you like that? You'd probably be thrilled, wouldn't you? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. There's one person that really understands your hopes, your fears, your insecurities. You know who that person is, don't you? The unfortunate thing is that they're right inside your body. And from that perspective, you can't see who you'd see if they were outside of you. But if you met yourself outside your body, you'd probably be saying, where have you been all my life? Right? <laughs> and you'd probably really love being around you. 
<laughs> well, guess what? You're around you all the time. Why not enjoy it from the inside? You know? So I was doing this loving kindness practice. I was doing a six-week period of, of Brahma Viharas and doing, doing metta for myself and it was going okay. I wasn't beating myself up, you know, but it, was, it wasn't like I was gushing head over heels in love. But I was just, just uh, patient with where I was. You know, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy. And then uh, after a few days, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. I didn't know why, but I, real, I knew they really loved me. And I thought, this would be so easy if I could see what they see. And then I asked myself, what do they see? Why do they love me? And that's when I kind of hit on this little practice that since here's my one shot at being with all of you, I get to share with you. So just close your eyes for a moment and bring, bring someone to mind who you share a really warm, loving connection with. And it can be a child, it can be a pet, it could be a dear friend, anyone who, any being that you share that loving energy with. And first, feel that warm flow of energy that you share. How sweet, how amazing that is that we can create that together with another person or being. As you have them in mind and have an image of them, just imagine for a moment your consciousness moving and inhabiting their reality and seeing through their eyes who they see when they're with their dear friend. Get in touch with all the things that touch them about you. Your kindness, your playfulness, your creativity or intelligence or all the things. This probably many. Just your essence that shines through. And just get who you are for a moment. Just really Drink yourself in, as one poet says. And see, if this person is worth, worthy of kindness and love and being happy, seeing the more that this person is in touch with it, the more all of those qualities shine through. You might send yourself love from that vantage point. May you really be happy. May you see all the goodness inside of you and share your love well. Now, let your consciousness come back right inside and from the inside, stay connected to those qualities. And from the inside, let yourself, again, feel the goodness and 
send some kind, loving thoughts. You can either say, may you or may I, whichever feels more connecting. May I feel all the goodness inside and share my love well. May I see through my confusion and appreciate who I really am. And if you can just get in touch even with a glimpse, notice that. If you weren't able to get in touch with it, no judgment, be really kind with that. But if you got even just a glimpse, then you can't pretend you don't have the capacity to feel metta for yourself, genuine love. And then it's just a matter of, of developing that more and more. So, Beyond the feeling of metta for self, there's really seeing who you really are. Even beyond those good qualities, those noble qualities. It's one thing to feel your unique beauty and it's another to see beyond to the place that those are just gifts of life that have expressed themselves as you. As, uh, let's see, might be familiar with this, uh, this quote from, if I can find it, from uh, Martha Graham to Agnes DeMille. There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening, that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares to other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly to keep the channel open. So that's an acknowledgement both of your uniqueness and also of the fact that you are a vehicle for something beyond you, whether you call it life or God or the Dharma, or the mystery, to express itself through you that you can't even take credit for. You know, can you take credit for any of the noble qualities you've been given? Certainly, you can develop what you've been given, but that natural resource of love or awareness, can you say, my pure awareness is better than your pure awareness? You know, my unconditional love is really good, you know is better than yours. It just doesn't make sense, does it? 
to put things in perspective, I want to share with you something that I've really been enjoying lately. Hopefully it'll relate. Uh, When I was, uh, I recently sat, I sat for the month of December at the Forest Refuge and uh, I took with me, somebody gave me a, a series of talks by this amazing, enthusiastic, brilliant um, scientist, spiritual teacher, Brian Swim, um, called Canticle to the Cosmos. And there were 12 talks and each night I'd, after I'd practice as diligently as I could to feel like I've I'd earned it. I'd go in my bed and with my headphones and just listen to the story of the universe from the beginning to where we are now. So I want to share with you just the very beginning of this to see who you are in this vast immensity. Mm. The sun is um, who you are, you, one of six or six to seven billion people on this planet, one of huge, vast number of other beings, and one line that I love from from Wes Nisker's uh, uh, book, Buddha's Nature, you have more living beings in your mouth right now than have than there have been people since the beginning of time. (laughs) That puts things in perspective, huh? That's just your mouth, not think of everyone else's. So here you are, this speck, this living entity on this planet called Earth, which is um, eight light minutes from the sun, and you probably know the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. A light minute is how long it, ta- light it takes light to travel in a minute. That's 93 million miles from the sun. Jupiter, by the way, is 30 light minutes from us. Pluto is five light hours from us. The nearest star is four light years away. That's 26 trillion miles and we are in a very dense area that we are surrounded by 200 billion stars in the Milky Way. It's very crowded in our area of the universe. Where the Milky Way is 30,000 light years across. We're 30,000 light years away from the center of the Milky Way and in the middle, a black hole lurks. (laughs) Ready to suck it all up. The Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. Outside the Milky Way, the next piece of substantial matter, 150,000 light years away are the Magellanic Clouds, a cluster of several galaxies. Oh, there's, there's um, oh yeah, the Magellanic Clouds, a cluster of several, several dozen galaxies that are circling the Milky Way, 150,000 light years away. The next object besides this cluster that's circling around the Milky Way is the Andromeda Galaxy, 2.1 million light years away with 300 billion stars 
several dozen galaxies rotating around them, around that. The Milky Way and the, and the Andromeda galaxy, plus those other galaxies circling, um, are circling in a big giant pinwheel, rotating. That's called the local group. <laughs> Next is the Virgo cluster, 70 million light years away, with over 1,200 galaxies, each with 100 billion stars. The universe is 15 billion light years across, they think, with a trillion galaxies. Now, where did all of this come from? Uh, Einstein saw that he had this revelation that he saw, wow, the universe seems to be expanding. But actually, according to Brian Swim, when he first came across this, he didn't, it was too mind-blowing. And so he changed his equations because he, it, it was too shattering to think that the whole thing is expanding. Then Edwin Hubble saw on his telescope that it was true, and he called Einstein. He said, check it out. You were actually right. right? And which Einstein calls the fundamental blunder of my life. It was the one time I, he lost confidence. When they realized the universe really is expanding, then that meant that everything came from one point at one moment in time, which we now colloquially call the Big Bang Theory. What Brian Sumer calls the primeval fireball. Everything, everything, a trillion galaxies, and everything on this planet, one little speck, all started from the same point. You are part of everything. When you think about it that way, how could you not belong? So, that's one perspective on seeing through this. You kind of put it in that, in that picture, you know, the thought, am I good enough? Seems kind of Irrelevant, doesn't it? <laughs> it seems it's both irrelevant and it is magical that life is expressing itself as you. The only time it's coming together in that unique way. Another way of looking at through this sense of separate self is the Buddhist concept of, not the concept, the perspective of who we are being just components of stuff put together 
in this mind-body process called the five skandhas or the five khandhas, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. This form being one and the other four being the mind. Feeling, perceptions, feeling the feeling tone, perceptions, mental formations, thoughts, feelings, mind states, and consciousness. That's who we are and who we who we attach and take to to be some kind of fixed entity to whom life is happening. But that's not the real show. Life isn't happening to you. It's happening through you or as you. But we can easily get caught in thinking, oh, I'm separate. And on one level you are separate, but on a deeper level there is just this process of life expressing itself through that form. And the key is to see through this form to something quite mysterious, what, what Ajahn Sumedho calls the shining through of the divine. Nyoshal Kempo, a great Tibetan teacher. Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself, is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure, unalloyed, and flawless. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There's no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. So when we get into this not enoughness, we're missing out on the truth. The mystery that life is expressing itself as you. Somebody at the, uh, to, uh, today in the interviews, it was a beautiful interview. He was kind of, he was seeing, he said he was walking, uh, doing walking meditation. And sometimes he'd, he'd notice the, the experience of the, you know, putting, placing the feet or hearing and seeing and things like that. And other times he'd see this shift of consciousness and just be the awareness looking at himself meditating. And to see both of those, to be the awareness that's not identified with this form is really liberating and free. And it lets go of this not enoughness. When I remember Trungpa Rinpoche once saying um, this great line, timidity is just another ego trip. Like, oh, I'm not good enough. Again, it's this I, the conceit of I am. So, how to work with the comparing and judging mind that doesn't seem enough and that gets us caught in a proliferation of thoughts that lead directly to suffering. So a few 
suggestions. One is on a relative level to have great compassion and forgiveness for this habit of mind that we all so easily can get caught in. Just in a moment, the more you see it, and as you start noticing it, you might see it everywhere. This is not bad news. Actually, if you can just tweak it a little bit, it's wonderful news because you're seeing through the habit that usually snares us. And so if you can see it and not take it personally, that's the whole deal. If you can shift from, oh, look at my mind, to, oh, look at how the mind works, then you're in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke. And that makes all the difference in the world. Look at the mind. I love this. I think it was said in here that in this fathom long body, the whole of life is revealed. This is your laboratory to understand and explore how we get caught and how we can be free. And it takes real forgiveness. In one moment, you can see from this perspective, oh, it's okay, dear. I've shared a story before, I'll share again, and about, a, for me, a turning point in forgiveness in my own practice. I was doing walking meditation in that slow way. In, uh, this is in the early years in, uh, at IMS where the, the gym, what's now a, a dorm, was a, a, a walking room, and I was all by myself in the, in the uh, retreat, just lifting, moving, placing, really getting into it. And I decided to play a game to see how slowly I could go. Right? And I just, I pretended I was like Marcel Marceau, you know, just, it's really cool. In the middle of this, somebody came into the room who had just come onto the retreat in those, the first couple of years they had, they tacked on a two-week retreat onto the end of a three-month retreat. They stopped doing that after a little while. But you could really feel the difference in somebody's energy. And there I was doing my walking, but I wasn't, I knew it was going to look really bizarre, but I wasn't going to change my game and just kind of, well, just keep on going, crawling, crawling. After about two minutes, this person bolted out of the room <laughs> in what I was certain was, you know, the comparing mind. And as she went across my field of vision, the thought came to me, she must think I'm a great yogi. <laughs> I really blew her mind. You know. And then I heard that thought in all its glory. It was awful. It was like I opened up to this trap door of ego and pride and presentation and just, ah. Uh, I then became this caged tiger. And uh, for the next 10 minutes, I was, I was just going back and forth fast. I stopped the slow walking. Just, oh my God, there's so much ego. I can't stand this. I'll never get rid of this ego. Who was I trying to kid? 
Well, this, and in one moment after about 10 minutes of this, it occurred to me the millions of times I'd had that thought, but not caught it. Like, look at me. It was just that I was able to be quiet enough so I could see it millions of times in this lifetime. And if you think of more than, you know, extended lifetimes, which by then I started to, it was like, you know, mind-boggling. And in a moment, this wave of, of deep compassion came over me. Like, oh, wow, you are trying so hard. This has been a habit you've been practicing a long, long time. This is not going to change overnight. A very profound moment in my practice. I remember it like yesterday. And I really, I felt a genuine wave of compassion f in, a, in a way that I'd never felt before. Oh, you're trying so hard. It's okay. That was much more important than walking like Marcel Marceau, you know. So have forgiveness for all the conditioning that you've practiced, but not to think it's hopeless. I'm here to tell you it is possible to change. You're in a process of changing. If you think, oh, well, this is, I've been practicing it this long, I'll never change, don't buy into that story because that story is just going to keep you locked into your reality. But if you see yourself as somebody who's in the process of learning to change, you're doing that here. One month, a lot can happen, even in the very least that you see through that story and you have great compassion for it and realize you're not alone in this. That is what's going to deepen your compassion to everybody else who you see caught in their story. So that's the first one. A second way to work with the comparing or judging mind, just seeing how empty those thoughts really are. Thoughts are as empty as you see them to be or as real as you believe them to be. Like I said the other day, Joseph saying, you know, just think of them as coming from the person behind you. You don't invite those thoughts in. It's all, again, just conditioning. And in the moment of mindfulness, you see it clearly. Just like the eye sees, the ear hears, the mind thinks. And often it thinks in patterns that it's been used to. But you don't have to believe those thoughts. They're empty. Just, oh, thinking, thinking, or if you can notice it, oh, judging, judging. Try this. This is a, a practice that it was my a main practice around judging for about two years using this mental noting. If you use the mental noting, the tone that you note makes all the difference in the world. Just try this. Suppose you really see yourself judging. You know, oh, judging. And then you notice, oh, I'm judging again. I just judge the judging, right? There's no end to that. But you can, in any moment, shift your relationship. Just try this. And close your eyes. You want to play around with this. And imagine you see a judging thought. Now, 
take your hand and put it on your cheek. And as if you are the wisest, kindest being, Kuan Yin or a wise grandmother or grandfather, just as you caress your cheek, silently say to yourself, oh, judging, judging, like, it's okay, dear. And let yourself feel it for just a moment. Feel the tenderness through your hand. That's how you want to notice the the judging mind. Then you're bringing mindfulness and compassion right in the noticing. And when I said, it was my main practice for about two years, both on and off retreat. I didn't do this all the time, but when I'd forget, I would, because there's something about feeling it that you can get in touch with. But the tone was right there. Another, Another way to work with the judging mind is a sense of humor. As is it? I think it's uh, Wes Nisker, or I think he originally got it from Wavy Gravy, says, if you can't laugh, it's just not funny. You know? <laughs> and you can get very serious doing this. Like I said, if you can go, wow, look at the mind. Do its thing. There can be a real lightness about it. Not to pretend, you know, if you're, if you're feeling deep pain, you can't just laugh it away. But if you find yourself caught, there might be a little space that says, oh, it's just the mind freaking out here. That's what's going on. Freaking out, Buddha. Okay. It's one of my favorite labels. You know. Oh, freaking out, Buddha. That's what's going on. Okay. Because the lightness get some space around it and you're not taking it personally. On one retreat, I was given the, uh, just a, a sense of humor story, I was given a, a instruction from uh, Joseph. He said, notice any sense of self, how it's being created. You know, I said, oh, cool, this is so exciting. I was getting into it. And I'd be doing my walking. No, no sense of self right now. You know, okay. okay. And sometimes it would be true. No, it's not there. Okay, that's cool. And this, I was doing walking meditation down in the one of my favorite places at IMS, the bowling alley. I had the lane, right? And there was this kind of bull in a china shop kind of yogi who was, who kind of uh, was a presence. Anyway, we'll put it like that, right? And he was, uh, and he was he was going through writing as he was walking through the corridor. I, what I thought was his his best sitting, you know, because they were this is the uh, Burmese reporting at that time, and there he was kind of clomping away and writing and making a lot of noise as he's going through. And as I'm doing my walking, you know, it occurs to me, well, I certainly have a lot less sense of self than he does. <laughs> 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 Whoops. Yeah. So with all of these humor, mindfulness, kindness, then you can learn to listen to that place inside as you get more and more refined. You can start to hear the difference between the place that's scolding you, that's tight 
or that somehow is contracted, it's not enough, or judging, or something's wrong and you're struggling, between that voice and a different voice that says, this feels right, this doesn't feel right, it's okay, dear. And you can feel it in your body, you can feel it in your mind, to really start to listen to the difference between those voices and not be run by the voice of confusion and contraction that the judging mind is usually sourced in. To get in touch, that other voice feels different. It's aligned, it's connected with the truth. There's a kind of support. There's a a, a compassion or a kindness in it. It's right in there, that Buddha inside is right in there if you can quiet down and listen to it. But it means not believing the other voice as being real. That's what taking refuge in the Dharma really is and taking refuge in the Buddha really is. It's taking refuge in the Buddha right inside of you if you quiet down and listen carefully enough. So, as far as the comparing mind or the judging mind, we just work with it in a very patient and loving way and seeing we are waking up to who we really are in this process. And that requires uh, an understanding of the conditioning and the fact that this doesn't happen overnight, but if you are facing in the right direction of more clarity and commitment to truth and love, that will shine through you. That's who you really are. So I'll, I'll close with a poem by Dana Falls called Birthright. Despite illness of body or mind, in spite of blinding despair or habitual belief, who you are is whole. Let nothing keep you separate from the truth. Your true nature, illumined from within, longs to be known for what it is. Undying, untouched by fire or the storms of life, there is a place inside where stillness and abiding peace reside. You can ride the breath to go there. Despite doubt or hopeless turns of mind, you are not broken. Spirit surrounds, embraces, fills you from the inside out. Release everything that isn't your true nature. What's left the fullness, light, and shadow. Claim all that as your birthright. So let's sit for a moment.
for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.